great tribulation. We started last week at looking at the initiation of the end. The initiation of the final great act of the wrath of God on the planet. And it was brought up very uh, correctly that there will be another act of God's wrath and it will be it will happen at the end of the millennium kingdom. But before the return of Christ and his establishing the kingdom on earth, this is the final one before the return of Christ. I think it's significant. You want to boil down the arguments of uh, whether you're an amillennial, a premillennial, or postmillennial, when the millennium is going to happen. It all kind of boils and hinges around Revelation 19 and 20. Look at it for a second. <coughs> It, it, it's an abundantly clear thing that in Revelation 19 it's talking about the return of Christ. That's really no argument at all um, by anybody. Ah, mill, pre mill, post mill, no mill, uh, uh, all kinds of mills. <coughs> Verses 11 to the end of 21 is obviously the return of Christ. Nobody denies that. The problem is, is that chapter 20 comes this passage, and this passage kind of separates all of them. Notice it starts, and especially in the NASB, it starts with the word then. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. Well, that, that's interesting because he talked about the abyss in a, in, in previously, and, and so here we have this angel coming down holding the chains, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Well, Satan and the devil are just mentioned previously um, in, the, in the section before. If you're an Amil, chapter 20 is just rehashing what's already been talked about all the way back to verse 16, or chapter 16. But the then shouldn't be there then. It should be another angel came and gave a new vision. If it said it that way, but it says then. And it seems to apply very clearly that it's a chronological sequence of things. Return of Christ and then this happens. And what happens? Satan is bound for a thousand years. In verse 3, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he, might be, he must be released for a short time. Now an Amil person would look at chapter 20 verse 3 and say, well, Satan is bound right now. Well, the fact of the matter is is that I don't know about you, but I don't think he's bound right now. And the reality is is that um, Paul talks about him the now presently working within the sons of disobedience. So he can't be bound now. So, again, it looks chronological. And the thousand years is mentioned there. And then verse 4 then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judge, judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Now, we found out that's when, back in what we're talking about, in 15. Same people, right? So no matter how you're looking at it, as you go along here, these are the people that are going to rule, reign with Christ, the end of verse 4, for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has in part has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and, and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The word thousand years is mentioned three times, literally. Uh, Amils and post-mills have a tendency to say that this doesn't mean a thousand, but it's repeated three times. So if we look at this chronologically, and it seems to be flowing chronologically, it seems to be obvious pre-mill all the way through this. Now, maybe I'm blind, but this is where I, I, it seems very obvious, okay? Now, why is that significant? Well, because I've talked to you about 13 through 15 and how, or 13 and 14, how it seems to be retelling a panoramic view. Well, their argument would be, see, it's just retelling a panoramic view again. But it's still sequencing. It's still moving forward chronologically. As we go through the book of Revelation, we're still moving through it. You got the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, right? You have the seal, the trumpet, the bowl, right? And it does seem to be changing. And a matter of fact, we're just about to get into the bowl judgments in chapter 16. And the bowl judgments, even reading my Reformation study Bible... <laughs> we see that they say, well, wait a second. The bold judgments seem to be repeating the same judgments as the trumpet judgments. But then they put this little footnote. But it does seem to include more of the people. All the people are infected by the bold judgments, whereas the trumpet judgments are what? Just a portion. Okay? So chronologically, we see the book of Revelation unfolding, right? We've seen this all along. And now we're at the end of the end. The wrath of the end. Before the return of Christ in 19. Before the setup of the millennium kingdom in chapter 20. Does everybody understand? So that's the overview of where we're at. We're in the initiation of that wrath. And let's look finally or, or at the setting for the final judgment and the worship over the final judgment and the initiation of the final judgment. Last week we looked at the setting, and we're not going to deal with that much, the setting for the final judgment. Tonight we're going to briefly look at the worship over the final judgment. It's found in verses 2 through 4. Let's read our passage. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Again, this is in heaven as verse 1 pointed out. Then they sang the song of Moses and the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. In verse 2, we see the worshipers. The worshipers are the ones that were victorious, as mentioned previously, over the beast. Now, were they victorious to the point of dying? Yes, they died, but that was part of their victory. They died, but didn't take the mark of the beast. They were in heaven. These worshipers did not take the, the image of the beast, the number, right? The victors are enjoying peace, as probably symbolized by the glassy sea. When you see, think of a sea, it's usually choppy. It's glassy, implying the idea of maybe peace. And they had harps, which are instruments of worship. So there is this worship scene in heaven, very much like Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The victors' worship is next seen in verses 3 and 4. 
the victor's worship. The victor's worship includes three main elements. First, you see in verse 3a, their song of deliverance and just judgment. And it says, And they sang the song of Moses and the bond the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb. Now these songs are probably references again to Exodus 15, the song of Moses. And the song of the Lamb would be a song that came out of or composed of Christ's life and death. These two songs were songs of redemption and of God's justice on display. So in the same way, at the end of this period of time, right before Christ returns, and in light of Christ's return, they're speaking of God's final redemption and God's justice going to be displayed at the end of the Great Tribulation period. So the next, so we see there's this song kind of reminding the reader of Moses and his song after um, deliverance from Egypt and the judgment on Egypt and the song of the Lamb being delivered from sin and the judgment of God on the Lamb to pay for our sin. Both of those songs have the same concept or connotation. And this song coming up has the same connotation too. Looking forward to that day when it will be a final deliverance and a just judgment before Christ returns. The next element of worship is their song of worship for the work and person of God. And it goes back and forth. It starts with praise for God's work. Then it goes to his person. Then it goes to his work. Then it goes back to his person. Notice in 3b it says... Great and marvelous are your works. Those two words are used again to describe the astonishment over God's works. Again, looking forward to the return of Christ and the judgments that are about to be demonstrated. Great and marvelous are your works. That is, God's works of judgment before his return. They're all inspiring, God's works of judgment. Then they praise God for his person. They say, Lord God, the Lord God Almighty, or our Lord, O Lord God, the Almighty. <coughs> Excuse me. God, Lord God Almighty. All three of these titles point to different aspects of who God is. His Lord, talking about his sovereign rulership. God, that he's the creator and sustainer of creation. And Almighty points to his omnipotence. That is, that he's the all-powerful one. This is who God is. This is why they worship him. He's all he's sovereign, he's creator, and he's all powerful. Then they can continue with more praise for his works. Notice it says, Righteous and true are your ways. Again, this idea of righteous or just or true, all of these fall into the same concept that what God does is just. It's righteous. He only does what's according to righteous acts. Now, why would this be important? Same reason why Romans chapter 9 is important. When we're reading along and we come along and we see that God elects certain people and other people he turns over to judgment, the natural response of mankind is to do what? Is God just to do that? Is God righteous to do that? Well, these people, in light of the judgment of God on all of the world at this time, would be tempted to say what? The same thing. Is God just? Is he righteous? And these worshipers say, yes, all of his ways are righteous. All of his ways are true. He's right on line in all of his acts, including his judgment. If God were to wipe out America tomorrow, it is February 11th tomorrow, right? 
and Iran said they're going to blow us up tomorrow? <laughs> punch us in the nose. If Iran did punch us in the nose tomorrow and wiped all of America out, which that's not going to happen, but if it happened, and then God's providential sovereignty allowed that to happen, would he be just? Absolutely. What if we died in the, what if we died in the process? We're good people. Wrong. It would be still 100% right and justice, right? He's always true in his ways. God is. And in this judgment, the great judgment, the worst of worst judgments, God is still just and true in all of his ways. And fourth, we see then the praise of God again for his person. He is king over all the nations. He is the proper ruler of the world. Kings come and go, but one day there will be a king that will reign forever. And that is our God. He is, the worship, he is to be worshipped for that. Finally, we see, third, their song of worship for the promised work to come. It's found in verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? At first glance, we look at that question and we say, is this question meant to leave doubt? Is there some that might not? The question's are also not meant to call for repentance. This isn't one of these where they're going, hey, listen up, fear God. Who's going to do it? The answer is, this is actually two rhetorical questions that imply no one. That's implied in the question. Look at it. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's not answered. It's assumed. Everyone will do it. No one's going to avoid this. God, you alone are holy because you are holy for all the nations will come and worship before you. That's a promise. They will. Why? Because God is in control. God is sovereign and God is going to bring this about. Who will, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The answer is no one. Everybody's going to at this point. At the end of the creation, or at the end of the tribulation period, God will demonstrate He is holy, He is sinless, and He is perfect, and He sets apart. And so, therefore, it ties to a prophecy from the Old Testament because all the nations will come and worship before you, every one of them, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's very important that this is not a new concept, ladies and gentlemen. Psalms 22, Psalm 66, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 66, Zechariah 14. All of these passages talk about a day when all the nations will <coughs> worship God. All of them will. So my question is, has it happened yet? No. No. So Revelation 15 is future. It still hasn't happened yet. Everybody's completely convinced now that you're a premillennialist. Let's go ahead and close with prayer on that. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you that one day you are going to bring about all nations coming to worship you. This is a guarantee. We thank you for this truth. We look forward to that day when Christ returns. And as we return with him, to rule and reign with Him. Not because we deserve it, but because You are a glorious and good God. We look forward to the day when nations and kings that mock You will have their hands 
put over their mouths and they will be shut and they will worship you as you deserve. And this does cause us to worship too because you are a just and holy God and we thank you for this. We worship you because you alone are holy and just. We look forward to the day when we will see you in your full glory. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you for including us in this. We praise your name. In Jesus' name.